Hey, beautiful. My new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Bestselling Authors, is finally out in bookstores. For as long as I can remember, I have wanted to write books. I'm guessing you can relate because you have stories too. World-transforming ideas tickling your brain. A unique perspective on a corner of life somehow overlooked. Perhaps a tale that won't stop unfurling its chapters inside your mind. The dream, the ache to write, has been thrumming through your veins for longer than you can recall. And yet, something, time, confidence, life, is holding you back. Well, not anymore, if I have something to say about it. I hope you'll pick up a copy of Beautiful Writers and let me know what you think. Now, let's start the show. You know how they do these kind of hackathons in tech companies where they'll take 24 or 48 hours and produce the product and everybody stays up all night and they're kind of cracked <laughs> out on caffeine or whatever and like whatever it takes, they get it done. I said, I want to do a version of that for this goddamn book proposal because no. I'm so tired of hearing myself talk about it. And I know it's in there, but I can't seem to get it done in the normal ways I get things done. A proposal for me doesn't look like what a proposal for me 20 years ago would have looked like. Now I'm able to say, hey, you guys, I want to write this book. Will you let me write this book? Or do you want to be part of it? And it's a lot simpler, obviously, because I'm already inside the system. Well, you have a track record. They're not going to lose money on a Liz Gilbert book. <laughs> you don't have to. Oh, you not. don't have to get. <laughs> you don't have to quite tap dance for your supper as much as some. <laughs> I don't think I ever lose the tap dancing instinct, though. I think once a tap dancer, <laughs> always a tap dancer. But yeah, here, yeah. here. I, I totally it. agree. <laughs> totally agree. Calling all tap dancers, stay up laters, dotting every I and crossing every tear. Uber passionate creatives. Today's show is so special to me. We've got Elizabeth Gilbert and Marie Forleo, dear friends who are celebrating the paperback release of Marie's number one New York Times bestseller, Everything is Figure Outable. I'm Linda Sievertson. And on this episode of the Beautiful Writers podcast, you get a behind the scenes look at how two of our most popular communicators very much support one another in life and in this writing world we all love. I think you'll feel like you're sitting with your besties talking shop over coffee. I know that's how it felt to me. If your creativity has been stalled or shaken by the events of 2020 and early 2021 already, may this feel like a reset, a reprieve, help you catch your breath. We're all activists here. Elizabeth and Marie are philanthropists who have raised fortunes for charity and Marie's B-School and Marie TV provide hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs detailed intel on sharing their gifts. These two are world changers on a significant scale. But as last month's Best Of episode was full of power of the pen activism, I called it a writer's survival guide. We recorded this for you immediately after Christmas. Marie had just had major hysterectomy surgery, as you'll hear. I wanted nothing more than to have a light, bright conversation. One that would go down for you, similar to how Liz described her best-selling novel, City of Girls, like a glass of champagne. As we celebrate books and the magical processes of dreaming them into being here, I wanted these ladies who have influenced my work and writing career so intimately to feel comfortable to let their hair and their guard down as we all endeavor to go into this new year with renewed hope and strength. And heads up, we do drop a swear word or two, or eight, <laughs> along with including a few excerpts from their delicious audiobooks. We cover writing for magazines, proofreading, rituals that may just help manifest best-selling miracles, scheduling our books, scripting our success through book proposals, and a discussion on word count. How important is it really? Liz reveals a ninja formatting slash craft move that she advised Glennon Doyle to use while writing her soon-to-be number one New York Times bestseller, Untamed. And Liz gave similar advice to Marie for everything is figureoutable. So you may really want to take notes. Plus, 
I had a few questions for them concerning my own recent book deal negotiations, things on the publisher's side, like donating a portion of royalties to charity and using more sustainable paper sources. I gotta say, I loved Liz's reaction to the paper topic. It made my tree-hugging heart happy. Speaking of, I am so happy that you are here. Thank you and welcome. Hey, hi everybody. Hey, mama. Oh, look at you with your cute I'll turn glasses. on my video so oh I can see. <laughs> I want to see your faces. Hi, gorgeous. Hey, mama. <laughs> hi. Hi, friend. Hi. Hi. Are you good, Mary? How are you feeling? I'm on the path. I'm on the healing path. I think I have a couple more weeks left to go until I can work out, which is, this is a huge not good thing for me in terms of I'm so used to being able to use movement as a way to keep sane. So that's definitely been a challenge. But on the good side, I'm here and it's healing. And I feel like every day I'm getting a little bit stronger and more normal me again. So that's good. Because you're used to being like power body girl. Yeah, it's it's really hard for you. Yeah, no, from a mental, I think the mental emotional health standpoint, That's my place to go to just kind of flush things, to like process things, to let it all just not even be up here and just be in here. And so that's definitely, I'm like, am I going crazy? You're such a dancing mama. I can't even imagine. Do you just sit in your chair and tap your foot? I had to stop myself from, I started to do like leg lifts. And then the other day I'm like, start, I'm like, oh my God. I was like, okay, I got to no, like, like, pop. <laughs> leg lifts, Marina. I'm like on my side reading and I'm starting to go like this. Oh, and I was no. like, okay, wait. <laughs> oh, totally. I'm going to take it off video because that will make the sound better. Okay. Bye okay, guys. So I love your faces. Oh, Liz, I forgot to show you my Ganesh, the charm you gave me in Pasadena. I'm wearing it for good luck today. Oh, put your video back on. Let's see. Okay, wait. Okay, where are we? Oh, I see it. Yeah, sweet. (laughs) I have it with my angel and my dead dog's paw print and (laughs) and hearts. All the important things. All the important things. Okay, Marie, I so appreciated your post of the story of how your best friend, Chris Carr, saw you wincing over FaceTime and made you go get that ultrasound. I think that was so powerful for you to share as a warning for people. I had a similar experience with one of my best friends. She had gotten really used to this weird rash that she had on her body. So for her, it was normal. It was kind of, you know, it wasn't alarming. And I saw the rash and I panicked. I absolutely lost my mind. I said, you have to go to a doctor immediately. And she did. And it was a skin cancer. It was a really dangerous skin cancer and it could have killed her. And I think by you being so public with this, it's really good for all of us to see that maybe we're comfortable with something that we've got going on and try to look at ourselves as we would if we were a friend of ours. (laughs) Does that make sense? Oh, it makes 100% sense. And I am certainly the person who I'm usually on top of so many things in my life. But of course, there's a lot of things I'm not on top of. And one of them is I get super frustrated with trying to navigate the health system. I feel so lucky to say that I actually have health insurance. So I understand that as being not common. And even having it for my whole adult life, I can remember this frustration of any time I was trying to go see a doctor, even for routine visits, I feel like I would have to jump through so many hoops. Mm -hmm. And I remember even in my early 20s, asking for certain tests to be run or, hey, I want to ask you about this and always feeling like no one would listen to me. And it got to a point where in my 30s, I was just like, I'm done with them. I'm done with them. Like I'm just (laughs) done going to doctors because I couldn't stand being so frustrated over and over and over again. And I know that might sound a little bit immature, but it's the truth. Yeah. So that's how I got to where I was (laughs) a few weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And Liz, just a year before Marie's hysterectomy, you were super public about your hysterectomy. And I imagine so many people went and got tested because of you. Well, I might have oversold the joy of it. (laughs) And I feel a little guilty about that, Marie, because for me, honestly, I would say my hysterectomy was among the top five most awesome gifts I've ever given to myself and (laughs) and true, true joys of my entire life. 
but I have a you know, I have a complicated relationship with that organ. I never really wanted it <laughs> in the first place, and I was like, yeah. you know, I just had a very non New Agey relate. I got in a little bit of trouble on social media for that. I was so gleeful about not having it, and you know what I'm realizing as I'm talking to you, Marie, because you and I spoke about it before yours, yes. and I said, go get it, it's the best. And a month after I had mine, I went to India. But I'm remembering now as you're talking that you and I have very different ways that we use our bodies. <laughs> so when I said that I made a full recovery, what I meant was I can walk around because that's, <laughs> oh my God, because that's what I do. And then I'm like, wait, for Marie Forleo to say that she made a full recovery, that's a very different story because <laughs> I'm never going to make a full enough recovery from anything to be able to do physically what you do, Marie. <laughs> Right. Well, I just want to say this though, Liz, your advice and just your perspective, because I had asked you, I was like, I just want to hear your perspective because I was getting so many different conflicting people were telling me all the things about it. And just to be super transparent, one of the things that we do share is the same thing was true for me. I have known since I was a little girl that I never wanted to have biological children. And so my uterus for me was not a thing. And I also don't subscribe to the notion that, oh, that's like the womb of my creativity. It's like, no, my whole being is creative. <laughs> like I am a creative machine. And if you remove one part of me, it's not going to stop me. It's going to take it. a lot more than a hysterectomy to slow me down in that respect. Physically, oh, oh I'm on my butt right now. But Liz, <laughs> to be honest, you did not oversell it at all. <laughs> Actually, I was like, it's help the me. Best. No, you it's helped the me best. find clarity to be really <laughs> honest with you and not hem and haw about it so that I could get it done before, you know, we're in the midst of this really awful global pandemic that I was able to get into the hospital in a moment where wow. things were on fire again. So you were wonderful. Don't even think for a moment. There's been so many gifts that have come out of this experience, even if the recovery is rocky. And it has been rocky, not from necessarily a physical place, because I got up and started walking really fast. For me, it's actually been more mental slash emotional. And people are like, oh, are you sad about losing your uterus? I'm like, no, <laughs> dude, I'm sad because having endorphins and sweating it out and working and challenging my body in a physical way is something I'm so used to that now I have tremendous empathy and I have such a greater understanding. Josh and I were talking about this. I got mental health issues. They run in my family. And there's been so many people in my life who have had to navigate really dark depression. And I feel like this experience has really given me a window into things mm -hmm. that I have never experienced before. So now I have just a slight more understanding of things mm -hmm. that I just had not experienced. And it just gives me more empathy. And Liz, on a side note, I don't know if you're into this stuff, but I literally have photos of what they took out of me. And it's like the <gasps> biggest alien ever. No, and please send me those. Oh my God, it's wild. Four images that I'm like, there's no way. How is this hiding in my body? And I didn't know it. I'm wow. not like, I'm a pretty tiny human. Right. And this thing, you're like, where was it? Like, how was it hiding? Anyway, sorry, we'll get back to the real stuff. Holy Promise shit. me that you will send me those pictures. I love that shit. Me too. <laughs> All right. So it has been one hell of a year, you guys, actually a few years, <laughs> but I want to congratulate you both for your healthy bodies and your book releases. So Liz, your incredible city of girls release in paperback also became a New York Times bestseller, of course. And Marie, I think everything is figure outable. Your bestseller, the birthday is December 29th for the paperback. Is that right? Yes. It's I love that it comes right before New Year's. That's such a great New Year's resolution gift for people, that book. Yeah, I've been relying on the everything is figure outable mantra. <laughs> I was going to say. I want to interject a thought from Marie's book for a second here. I love the part of her audiobook where she explains the parameters of what exactly is figure outable and what's not. Let's make one thing clear. I don't pretend to have all the answers, nor does this book. But in these pages, you'll get a simple framework and a set of tools to help you find or create your own. If you're a person who thrives on playing devil's advocate, you might already be thinking, no, Marie, everything is not figure-outable. What about X, Y, or Z? Look, if you try hard enough, I'm sure you can conjure up something fantastical that's not technically figure-outable or not figure outable yet. For example, you can't bring your childhood dog back from the dead, 
though there are scientists working on cryogenics and dog cloning is happening. You can't figure out how to grow working human wings out of your back, although we humans can indeed fly. Even if this entire audiobook is bullshit, can you think of a more empowering and pragmatic philosophy to embrace? Can you imagine a more useful and supportive belief than everything is figureoutable? With that in mind, here are three rules of play. Rule number one, all problems or dreams are figureoutable. Rule number two, if a problem is not figureoutable, it's not really a problem. It's a fact of life or a law of nature. For example, death or gravity. Rule number three, you may not care enough to figure this problem out or achieve this particular dream. That's okay. Find another problem or dream that ignites a blazing fire in your heart and go back to rule number one. It must be fun for you two to be such good friends and to share your book successes at the same time. Do you guys talk shop when you're together or is it more just pizza eating and dancing? It's a lot of pizza eating, but yeah, we talk shop. We talk about everything. I think from the very first time that I met Marie, even on camera, on her show, there's an intimacy where already we were, I don't know, we were friends already before that first taping was ever finished. But we do talk shop and I was lucky enough to be able to read a draft of everything is figureoutable at the very beginning. And that's always such a vulnerable thing for people to share their work when it's at that stage, when it's not completely lathered and polished and to be trusted with that. I take that very seriously. I know what it feels like to hand an unbound manuscript to somebody. And, (laughs) And then you always have to ask the person, how can I be of service? What can I help you with with this? There are so many different ways to read an unbound manuscript. And sometimes people just need you to say, you're doing great. <laughs> you know, I'm so, proud of, I'm so proud of you, little bunny, pat, pat, little head. Like sometimes that's what I need. I'll tell my friends, I don't want your criticism. I just want your encouragement right now because I'm uh-huh. not ready to be criticized yet. And then other times it can be very laser where you're like, tell me how to get out of chapter five. <laughs> I'm stuck here. What is it? And then other times... If you really trust somebody, you can ask, what is your broad sweeps opinion? And so I just felt really honored that Marie gave me the privilege of letting me be part of that, letting me be a small part of the creation of that book. Oh, Liz was amazing. Let's just Mm. dive into what's real. She literally, (laughs) I think the text back was like, please, please, for the love of all things, holy trust Auntie Liz, where essentially the intro, she's like, you don't need any of this. None of this. It was so awesome because I am the kind of person obviously it's Liz friggin' Gilbert, right? right? And I'm like, first of all, you can tell me anything you want to tell me. I can take anything. It's yeah. totally good. And I want to hear it because my only objective is to do the best that I possibly can for my reader. So I'm so close in this thing. I don't know what's front and what's back. So whatever <laughs> you have to share with me that could potentially help it be the best book that it can be, man, give it to me. No and kidding. so she was super generous in telling me exactly like basically the whole front matter I didn't need and just to get right to the story, which I 100% listened to her advice Mm. and it was 100% the right tweaks that I needed to make. It was awesome. It opens with the story of your mom, right? If I remember correctly. Yes, that's exactly right. You're coming home from school and she's just fixing every, she fixes the roof, she's fixing the plumbing, she's retiling the bathroom. There was no Google. There was no YouTube. She's just figuring it out herself. And you're like, mom, how the hell are you doing this? (laughs) Yes, it really was. It was a story of the Tropicana Orange. And it's a really simple story, but it's a really fun story. And it's the true origin story of this fun little phrase that can make such a powerful difference. And Liz saw immediately how, again, I probably had, I don't know, 15, 20 pages, if not more before that. It was great because a lot of what we wound up not having in the front of it, I was able to reshape and remake in different places where it was way more effective. Mm. And so the story could shine first and hook people in. And I know this from marketing and business. Facts tell, stories sell. And for this- Ooh, nice dude. Yes. Copy (laughs) copy cure. The truth, right? Human beings learn by storytelling. And Liz is one of the best storytellers there are. 
So for her to be able to just say, Marie, this is where you got to begin it. I was like, yes, ma'am. Thank you. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, to be fair to Marie, I think what I may have said to you, I forgot that I said, trust Auntie Liz. (laughs) Trust (laughs) Auntie Liz. Cut that. But I often see that the first 15 pages are unnecessary of many books. I said the very same thing to Rhea, my beloved now deceased Mm. partner, when she wrote her memoir, Harley Loco. I actually said, let's get rid of the first 30 pages. A lot of times I call those pages the runway and it's a lot of throat clearing and a lot of kind of nervous shuffling of papers. And there's also oftentimes in those beginning pages, especially in a nonfiction book, I did the same thing with Glennon with Untamed. I say, chop out the whole beginning, start here, start in the middle of a story. Holy shit. Yeah, because, <laughs> because what happens often is, and lots of times this is people pandering to the publisher or it's them trying to establish their credentials for why you should read this book by me and who I am. And I don't care. And no reader cares. So just get rid of that. All I want you to do is pull up a chair. I want it to feel like you're my friend. You just had the most amazing experience. You ran into my apartment to tell me all about it. You didn't even take your raincoat off before you sat down and started talking. I want that kind of intimacy. (laughs) I don't want a preamble. I don't want an introduction. I don't want a preface. I don't want anything of that. And I think especially in kind of business nonfiction, that's considered to be necessary. And Glennon was really struggling with that with her publisher because she just felt that the writing was so dry. And it was until she got to what we love Glennon for and what we love Marie for, what I loved Rhea for, which is give me that juicy, juicy story. And also, I find that you can often cut what comes after the story. And I might have reminded you, Marie, that Jesus spoke only in parables. <laughs> if you're going to cut out everything in the Bible that Jesus didn't say, that's all the corporate speak. The rest of it is just a guy who is an amazing storyteller telling stories and then not telling people what the stories meant, allowing people to decide for themselves what they meant. Use their own brilliance. Yeah, trust your reader. Trust your reader and let them come to their own conclusion. They'll get it. They'll get out of it what they need to get out of it. But don't say, I'm going to tell you this because I want you to have this experience. Here's your story. Now, I hope you had this experience because I just told you this. (laughs) All you got to do is just tell the story. You know, I'm such a story consumer. So for me, I'm like, let's go right to the candy. Do you know how many people's minds right now are in a total tizzy or will be when they hear this? Because My agent and I have been taking Zoom calls with publishers since November for my book, The Beautiful Writer's Life, based on this show. And what I keep hearing over and over is that they love the intro. So now you are so screwed, Liz, because I have your email and I'm (laughs) going to send that damn intro to you and go, can I keep it, Liz? Hey, if they love it and you love it, you have what I like to call not a problem. <laughs> you have what I, but Glennon didn't love the way her book was feeling. And there was some uncertainty in Marie at that point about the way her book was feeling. And, but yeah, if you're oh, good and they're hilarious. good, then you just, hey, I, don't fix it if it ain't broken. I'm not an assassin. <laughs> Fair enough. Marie, I love how vulnerable you were at the launch of this book. I remember seeing the video when you got the call that it had hit the number one spot on the New York Times. And I think you were in a hotel room, you were on a bed, you started crying, and then you shared the secret sauce, the affirmation that you wrote for a year and a half. Can you talk about that? I think our listeners will love that. (laughs) Yes. So I am a person of you know, we talked a little bit about energy at the top of the call. Like I have a lot of it and I have to channel it in specific (laughs) ways in order to try and keep myself some version of healthy. And I really wanted to do my best to make this book, everything is finger outable, as successful as it could possibly be. You have to kind of release it. You can't control everything. But for me, I was like, I want to do my best on the pieces that I can control. And One of my practices is just writing in a journal. I love, like most of us do, morning pages from Julia Cameron. Other times, it's just kind of a freeform consciousness, a few pages here and there. But when I found myself struggling really, really hard to both write the book and run my business, I was under some mistaken notion that I was like, oh yeah, I can run this growing business. We're hiring more people. I can do all the things I normally do in my day and also write a book and have it be really good. (laughs) And so I struggled for months trying to find the time and 
really a rhythm to make all those things happen without feeling like I was burning out and making myself exhausted and miserable. And I hit upon just a little ritual that I started where I would wake up in the morning at about 5 a.m. and I would write the same sentence at least 15 times. I am a number one New York Times bestselling author. And it sounds really cheesy (laughs) and it sounds really ridiculous, but it was a way for me to get that reality onto the page and just do it 15 times a day. And I think I did that for probably about a year and a half. And then I'd write all that down and then I'd open my little Google Doc and then keep working on the book. Mm. And whether or not that made a difference, we also worked our buns off. Sure. Uh, And there's, of course, some great- It's a great book. Thank you. And the support of our audience where people actually came out and people like Liz, who were kind enough not only to give me feedback on the manuscript, but also- provided a blurb. So, so many people contributed to that book being successful, but it was a way for me to just write down a reality to keep this brain, which likes to focus on a hundred different things, focused on one thing every Mm -hmm. day that I felt like I could control. I knew consciously there was no way I could control like getting on that list. So that was more of a fun thing, (laughs) right? Like I made no, that's not anything any of us. And honestly, if it didn't, I wasn't going to cry about it. My whole goal was to make the best book I possibly could make. And that was just one of those things that for myself and my team were like, wouldn't it be cool if we were also able to accomplish that? Hell yes. Liz and I talked about this when she was on this show, when we first started this podcast, about the importance of believing in some magic and having magic in your life. Before you hear me share my mystical best-selling ritual with Liz and Marie, I want to splice in a quick bit from our episode with Liz in 2015. Here she is telling me and Danielle Laporte about how the very word magic has inherent magical properties. Well, if you want to get like deep down into the roots of mysticism, all of the words have deeply magical properties, right? Language is incredibly powerful. But I definitely think it's a joyful word that makes people feel happy and feel a sense of possibility. Max Weber, the German philosopher, talked about the disenchantment of the modern world by which he referred to sort of the post-enlightenment Western world that we live in, some of which I'm very grateful for. There's a level at which the world needed a little disenchanting. (laughs) You know, like when you erase certain kinds of enchantment, you also erase certain kinds of really dumb superstition, racism, sexism, the rule of kings. You know, there's all this stuff that's tied up in a very superstitious way of seeing the world that enlightenment and rational thought and empiricism helped break down. And we are all beneficiaries of that. So I'm not totally negating the rational empirical world. I'm grateful for all the advancements that came with it, but you don't want to totally make the world an unenchanted place. And I think that the fact that we're all talking about this word magic means that we're all tuned into this idea that certainly in the realms of creativity and love and spirituality, you had best keep some room in yourself for magical thinking or else you're not going to have much of a motive to do the work because there isn't a rational reason to do all those things. There has to be a magical reason to do it. I had been a ghostwriter and had never hit the list. And in my industry, when you're a ghostwriter, that's the holy grail. That's the thing that helps people feel safe to hire you It's kind of like they look at you and they think, oh, she's got the Midas touch. She's been able to write a New York Times bestseller. So I got hired for another book and I thought, you know, I need to up my game. I need to make this guy's book a New York Times bestseller. And he was paying me for that. He was giving me a bestseller writer, $5,000 every week we were on the list as incentive. And so I, every night before bed, I would go and brush my teeth and then I would look in the mirror And I would say, good night, New York Times bestseller. And I would wink at the mirror. And I did that for a year. And we hit the list and it was like number five. And my name was on it. And forevermore after that, I was able to charge much better fees. And I had a much easier career after that. So it did everything that I hoped it would do. But I don't know if it probably it would have happened had I not done that ritual, but it made me feel like I was in a happier universe. <laughs> Listen to you guys dreaming your world into being. <laughs> it's so beautiful to hear both of these stories. I love it. Don't undermine it. I mean, wow. I'm just so touched and inspired by that. Mm. How about you, Liz? 
I'm trying to think if I have an equivalent story to that. It's more, I would have to go back to, well, when when I was a teenager, when I was in high school and I was in the school play and I was the understudy and anything goes, our tiny little high school, we got to write our bios and the mimeographed playbill that we had for the school. And mine says, and I was 14 or 15 and mine said, Elizabeth Gilbert will travel the world and write for the New Yorker. No! But no, the cute thing about this is the New Yorker still hasn't published any of my writing. (laughs) That's amazing. But they've reviewed me. They've had to write about me, but they've never let me write anything for them. But there was that sense from a very early age that these are the two things that are really important to me, writing and traveling. This is who I'm going to be. And, and I believed that about myself long before anybody else did it. It wasn't like I had a bunch of naysayers in my life. It's just that I knew. And I think that that's the thing in your book, Marie. One of my favorite parts of your book is the adage for people to start before they're ready. And I think that's so important. And I also think there's a point of believing in yourself before you have evidence and before mm-hmm. anybody else can see it. The first person who has to believe in you is you, or you wouldn't even bother what would be even the point. And so I feel like I was my first publicist. (laughs) I was my, (gasps) you know, writing up my write-up in the local school playbill, like watch this young up and coming talent, you know, and no lesser a writer than Walt Whitman did that when he published his first book of poetry. He wrote reviews of it under an assumed name and sent them to newspapers all over New England saying, this person is the greatest poet of his age. It happened that he was correct, (laughs) but there wasn't anybody else who knew that yet. He was the only one who knew. Right. So he had to do his own press. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. You know, when Danielle and I wrote your big, beautiful book plan, we talked about scripting your own success. And I think that's exactly what you were doing, Liz, because think about it. When you were a kid... Terry McMillan talked about that on this show, about how when we were young, the New Yorker was everything. It was the one thing that every single writer said, I want to be in the New Yorker. I've got to get in the New Yorker. So when you were a kid, that was the holy grail. But if you look at your career, Liz, you have written for so many magazines based in New York. So I think it's pretty damn close. I'm going to call it good enough. (laughs) I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Well, I'll just say too, Liz, your ability to transport people, you know, one of my kind of side gigs, I don't want to call it a guilty pleasure because I have no guilt about it whatsoever, but I just like being on the internet and looking at real estate. And I love looking at like real estate that's changed hands. I love looking at what's on the market. I love looking at interiors and townhouses and makeovers and you name it. And I was coming across this one little article the other day. It's like, the house that Julia Roberts with Eat, Pray, Love. And it was like, you know, we love Julia Roberts. She's amazing. But I'm like, that's Liz Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) And I just am thinking in my mind about your writing, Liz, and that young you. And little did we all know who you would become and how you would transform millions and millions and millions of lives with that desire to experience adventure and to seek out who you really are and to bring us these incredible stories. I mean, all of your books talking about magic, like big magic. Another was like, oh my gosh. So I know I'm just gushing on you, Liz, and you're a friend of mine, but it's like (laughs) that little girl knew what was up, (laughs) really, really knew what was up. That big magic was in there. Oh, thanks, sweetheart. (laughs) Thanks, my head. I think we all know when we're, and maybe not all, but I think most famous people that I've interviewed, they knew when they were kids. They knew what they were here to do or they had a really strong sense of it. And I think that's part of why in Hollywood, there are so many stories of producers or directors or movie stars that they can be really tough when they're younger. And some people might say assholes. (laughs) And I've watched it up close so many times before they hit there's so much frustration because they have a sense of where they're supposed to be and where they're going and they're not there yet. And they're just really irritated about it. I don't know. Mm. That's a theory. Almost like impatient for everybody to catch up with what they feel already to be. And, you know, we can't in the moment judge. I'm very patient with people who have grandiose visions for their lives because I had grandiose visions for my life. And 
who knows? You know, it's like part of the reason when I was a teacher of writing and I was never all that comfortable being a teacher of writing. I was never all that comfortable being the one to tell some, I would never anyway, it's just not my nature, but like to tell someone that they don't have it. You don't have what it's got kid, because all of us also have stories of people telling us that in some way or another. And the last thing you want to do is show up in somebody's memoir 30 years later as the asshole who didn't say, who didn't see that the genius was a genius, you know? So that's why I've always been really supportive of people trying stuff because we don't know what they've got within them. And I, for one, would love to see. All right. Time. I want to talk about time. Liz, in our last interview, you talked about how your creative rhythm goes by seasons and there are seasons for writing. There's, you said it's almost like an agricultural clock. So Mm -hmm. I think you're in the writing season now. Is that right? Yeah. Well, when I put my announcement up on social media saying that I'm writing, that's kind of a shorthand for I'm working. It doesn't necessarily to me mean that I'm sitting down at my desk creating pages. What it means to me is that I'm working on a book. And there's, for me, there's years of work that I usually have to do before I actually sit down and start writing pages. But yeah, the quick answer to that is yes, it's work season for me and I'm working on a new novel. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm in my happy place. Oh, I'm so excited. You are so prolific. I was looking at your website the other day. I'm actually going to post a picture of it because it was so staggering. And I saw it, Marie, in your interview with Liz, where you showed the same image of all her book covers next to each other. Boom, 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 boom. boom. And you're like, what? And they're such (laughs) iconic books. There's so many of them. When you put them all next to each other, it's like, I don't know, 12 or something. It's a big amount. And when they're all together, they're so beautiful. And Each one means so much to me as a reader at a different point in my life. And it means so much to me for different reasons in my life. And it's staggering. I love that you just gave me three or four extra books that I... (laughs) (laughs) I would love to be the author of 12 books. I think it's for like eight or nine, but um, but, but thank you so much because now I'm just going to say that I'm the author of 12 books. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. That feels good. That feels good. I feel like, oh, I'm ahead of schedule. Great. Fantastic. There you go. There you go. (laughs) So Marie, in the book, you say, push yourself. If you don't strive for two free hours a day, chances are you won't even get one. Whoa. So what do you fill those two free hours a day with? Well, to set some context, that little challenge exists in the chapter around really living an excuse-free life. Yeah. Because in the notion that everything is figureoutable, and if there's one thing, one challenge, one problem, one dream that you're really, really committed to unpacking or making it come alive, whatever that means to you, one of the things that can pop up is, oh, but I don't have the time for this. So that's why that challenge of striving to create this little pocket of two free hours a day is really exciting. It's not easy, (laughs) but for me... It depends on what I'm looking to create. So there have been times in my life. So for example, when I was writing Everything is Figure Outable, as I was sharing, I had to wake up at about five to basically have those next two hours to work on getting pages out and then be able to run the rest of the business. Right. At different points in my life, if my relationship was on the rocks or things were not so good when it relates to my family or my health or just any pocket of my life where stuff was off and I Mm -hmm. needed to work hard to get it back on, that's how I spend those two hours. So it's nothing that's written in stone. And it certainly doesn't have to meet that rigid schedule of two hours, but that's my way as a coach because I love working with people and helping them creatively solve their own problems. Yeah, That's my methodology for helping people to see that they do have the time for what truly is most important to them. And I was talking about this the other day on social. My secret to getting it all done is that I don't. I'm extremely (laughs) good at saying no. I love disappointing people, not from a harsh place, but like I'm the queen of disappointment on my team to people that might want me to do X, Y, or Z, or this is a really great opportunity. So coming back to time, I think it's just useful and important to not tell ourselves the lie that we don't have the time because what I've seen in my own life and I've seen it for other people is if it's important enough to you, you make the time. And if not, you make an excuse. Well, and sometimes it's about 
focus and not the physical time because there are times certainly, you know, I had a young kid when my mother was dying. So it's taking care of a son and a bunch of dogs and my mother. And I didn't have a lot of extra time. There are times in your life, back to what Liz was talking about with seasons, there are times where your season is full. And yet I found ways. So I could be rubbing my mother's feet and wait for her to fall asleep. And then I would, at the foot of her bed, start writing. So it's a matter of focus, sometimes more than the physical time. And I want to say this, right now, I'm in recovery from a surgery. I'm not waking up at 5 a.m. and (laughs) I'm not writing and I am not working. This is a season and a stage for me to heal, which means that the brain and for me, creativity and creating something from nothing, that takes an enormous amount of energy. And right now, my physical body needs the focus. So that whole chapter, and just to, again, set context, I'm not advocating for people punishing themselves or also making themselves just be a productive machine. You know what I mean? Like on autopilot, that's not it. But for most of us, at least a lot of us, at some point in the game, you're like, oh, I would really love to do that, but I just don't have the time. Mm -hmm. I found that nine times out of 10, that's not necessarily the truth. Yeah. No, it's true. And I'm a big healer and griever. So When my mother passed, I did not write for weeks. I allowed myself to cry as much as I needed to cry and just be a zombie. And sometimes that's really, really important. That's right. So again, that whole little chapter and everything is figureoutable. It's for those times when we're not in a stage or season where it's okay to take your foot off the gas. It's okay to let yourself feel or heal or whatever is happening where you're trusting your intuition and your heart that it may not be a season to in work mode. That's perfectly okay. But when it is that time again, most of us can carve out or find those 15 minutes or 20 minutes here, there, just like you were sharing, Linda, where you can absolutely put some of that magic down on the page. Yeah. Can I ask you, Marie, about your book proposal? How long did it take you to write your proposal for this book? Because I'm guessing it was large. The marketing section alone could have been 20 pages. That's a great question. I actually gave myself a challenge because of the fact that work tends to fill the time allotted. And I was finding myself knowing that I knew the idea for the book was everything was figureoutable. And I kept saying, okay, I want to get this proposal done. But again, running the business that I run and all those things, I just was not making the time. So I decided one day, I told my agent and I told one of the women on my team, I said, hey, you know how they do these kind of hackathons in tech companies where They'll take 24 or 48 hours and produce the product and everybody stays up all night and they're kind of cracked <laughs> out on caffeine or whatever. And like whatever it takes, they get it done. I said, I want to do a version of that for this goddamn book proposal because no. I'm so tired of hearing myself talk about it. And I know it's in there, but I can't seem to get it done in the normal ways I get things done. So I set up two days where I told everybody, leave me alone. And I worked with the woman on my team and my agent. I said, I want to get this to like the 80 to 90% mark over these two days. And I did it. Oh and, my God. Yeah. And then we spent another few weeks getting it from 80 to 100%, which that's always can be some of the most difficult is getting right. over the finish line. But I had so much created in these two days because I forced myself to do it. It was one of the most effective ways to get that thing done. It wasn't crazy long, but the marketing piece, that is really easy and fun for me. Yeah. It was more about, I had so much to say, figuring out the order to put it in. And I had seven or eight different tables of contents that are like, maybe this one, maybe this one, maybe this one, until I figured out the one that felt like it served the best. And then here's the truth. I spent so much time stressing over that damn table of contents and it freaking changed the moment I started writing it. Oh, everything changed. And I love your agent, Bonnie Solo, is so dear. That makes me so happy thinking that she was helping you in that 48 hours of intensity. I did a similar mad dash. Simon & Schuster had lost a title one summer and they put out the APB with agents all over New York saying, we need somebody to write a book called, what did they want to call it? Green Teens. And my son just that weekend had made a video at Whole Foods called Green Teens for the Environmental Club at his high school. So I get this email from my agent at the time saying, 
hey, do you want me to put your name in the hat? And I said, I can't, I'm on a deadline. And I was like, wow, this is really sad because Tosh and I could have done it together and we could do the mother-son angle, but I don't have a minute. I have chapters due tomorrow, I can't. She wrote it for me. She wrote a proposal overnight. She surprised me. She sent it to me the next morning. And then of course I had to edit it. So I reworked it, but we got the whole thing done in 48 hours and I got the book and it ended up being called Generation Green. But I've never thought of that until now that sometimes the best work is when you do that high intensity, very, very quick spurt. Sometimes you get your best stuff done. Yes. How about Liz? What was the last book proposal you wrote? I wrote a book proposal for City of Girls. And it was probably, I'm trying to remember now, I had Big Magic finished. I don't think I wrote a proposal for Big Magic. I think I just sat down and wrote it. (laughs) And then I offered it along with this book proposal for City of Girls. So it was kind of a bundled package. Amazing. And I think it was probably 10 or 12 pages long. It wasn't enormously long because I didn't have yet a huge amount of research done. But I think that I had written what is still the first few pages of the book, where Vivian says, when I was 19 years old and an idiot, I came to New York to live with my Aunt Peg, who owned a theater in New York City. And I wrote that whole beginning piece about her getting kicked out of Vassar and her parents not knowing what to do with her and then putting her on the train. I'd been at boarding school since I was 12 years old, and maybe I felt that I had done my time. How many more books does a person need to read in order to prove that she can read a book? I already knew who Charlemagne was, so leave me alone, is how I saw it. Also, not long into my doomed freshman year at Vassar, I had discovered a bar in Poughkeepsie that offered cheap beer and live jazz deep into the night. I'd figured out a way to sneak off campus to patronize this bar, my cunning escape plan involving an unlocked lavatory window and a hidden bicycle. Believe me, I was the bane of the house warden, thereby making it difficult for me to absorb Latin conjugations first thing in the morning, because I was usually hungover. There were other obstacles as well. I had all those cigarettes to smoke, for instance. In short, I was busy. Therefore, out of a class of 362 bright young Vassar women, I ended up ranked at 361, a fact that caused my father to remark in horror, Dear God, what was that other girl doing? Contracting polio, as it turned out, the poor thing. So I think I actually sort of began the book and said, this is where it's going to start. And then from there, these are the main characters and this is essentially what's going to happen. And then as often happens, I mean, I had the whole story mapped out and then it didn't turn out when I sat down to write it. It wasn't exactly what I had mapped out because the story had its own ideas. Of course. But a general idea was pretty close. But at that point, if you were a first-time novelist, I know that a great deal more would be expected and demanded of you. A proposal from me doesn't look like what a proposal from me 20 years ago would have looked like. Now I'm able to say, hey, you guys, I want to write this book. Will you let me write this book? Or do you want to be part of it? And It's a lot simpler, obviously, because I'm already inside the system. Well, you have a track record. They're not going to lose money on a Liz Gilbert book. (laughs) You don't have to to quite tap dance for your supper as much as some. (laughs) I don't think I ever lose the tap dancing instinct, though. I think once a tap dancer, (laughs) always a tap dancer. But yeah. Here, here. I I totally agree. Totally agree. I was thinking about that the other day as I was doing the 15th edit of her something that was small. And I thought, God, Linda, do you always have to work so hard? And then I thought, I don't actually know how not to. And it's fun for me. So quit dogging yourself, sister. Yeah. If you like it, why wouldn't you? The question is, will you always get to work this hard? (laughs) That's how I feel about it. (laughs) If you're lucky, you'll always get to work that hard. Years ago, I was a professional dog walker in Beverly Hills in Hollywood. And I got a call, People Magazine, they were doing a cover shoot with John Goodman and they needed a puppy. So they called me and they said, do you have any puppies? I said, as a matter of fact, I have a golden retriever little puppy, I'll bring him over. So I spent the day at this photo shoot and John Goodman at the time, he was on everything. He was on Roseanne and he was doing tons of movies. Oh, I thought you meant drugs. (laughs) (laughs) 
I couldn't wait for the list. He was on Coke. He was on Ritalin. He was on Speed. He was on Hair. I was like, what was he on? Okay, go ahead. Um, yes, he was on a lot of television programs also. Yeah. And just doing tons Sh- of Shows movies. where my mind is. Okay, go yeah, on. Yeah, that's hilarious. And I said, John, why are you working so hard? You've made it. And he said, because I get to. And one day, oh. I won't get to. And I was like, ah, oh, I get it. Yeah. Wise man. He played my father in Coyote Ugly. <laughs> oh my God, that's right. <laughs> about that. Oh, that's awesome. Another one of those GQ magazine articles you wrote that wasn't in the New Yorker. <laughs> yep. This is for both of you. Who are your eagle eyes? Do you have proofreaders or do you let your book editors handle it? I've got two who are gods, my sister and my best friend from college, Margaret Cordy. My sister, Catherine Gilbert Murdoch, who's also a very celebrated writer who just won the Newbery Award last year for her incredible children's book, Book of Boy. Amazing. She's the finest, like inch by inch line editor I've ever seen. I can't think of anybody who works at any publishing company who could be the rival of her. And she also, I mean, we've been reading each other's work since we were kids. So there's a real intimacy. But she's the last person I get it to because she's also scary. So I have other friends read it for the first few drafts and I clean up a lot of the really, really obvious stuff. And I don't give it to Catherine until it's ready to be looked at with the finest sandpaper. And my general feeling is I like to turn in a perfect book. Editors are really busy. And I find that my friends have a lot of times more time than book publishing editors do. And then my best friend from college, Margaret Cordy, who used to be an editor at Harper's, I pay her to read it and to edit it. So my feeling is, by the time I hand something in, even to my agent, I want it to be what I would consider to be perfect. And then I'm willing to work on it, but I don't want to waste the time of anybody at my publishing company. I don't want to waste their time with them having to do little things, you know? Oh, for sure. So then they can come back with broad stroke stuff. But yeah, those are my go-to editors. Love it. How about you, Marie? Yeah, I feel like, Liz, you have such a great perspective there because you've published so much and continue to. I'll just speak books. into this. Or yeah, 13. 12, right? yeah. 12 books. Right don't don't it, forget it, people. Seriously. Buy them all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for the magic ones to like, just boop, they're going to just like pop into the screen. Awesome. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so for me, I found it really interesting. There's a woman on my team, Marion Shimberry. She was initially, she was a customer for my business a long time ago, like one of the first kind of coaching programs I ever did online. We're talking like well past maybe 12 years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. But she now works on my team in my company. And I had most fun editing the manuscript with her. I actually found it a little bit challenging to navigate the editorial system within the publisher. They're great. I love my publisher. They're awesome. But what I found was Mary and she knows me and she knows my voice and my intentions so deeply that she was able to help me communicate things. She's like, oh no, I've heard you say this a million. This sounds just like you. Mm. And sometimes some of the feedback that I received, whether it was kind of higher level or anything like that, I was like, no, I don't agree with that. That's not where I want to go with this. And it wasn't because of an issue of anyone not having valuable feedback, but I'm very, very clear on what I want to say or what I want to communicate and things that I'm leaving in or leaving out. So Marion's just closer to my soul and the understanding of who I am as a being and as a writer and what I want my reader to hopefully feel or imagine. So that was really instrumental for me. Do either of you ever give a percentage of your book profits? I know you're both very, very charitable, but in my negotiations right now, and I hear this from a lot of writers, they ask me about this. I wanted to have a charitable component on the book, on the back cover. It's something that's been important to me. For me, it needs to be an environmental charity. Have either of you done that with a publisher? Anything I should know? I I looked into it. Oh, sorry, Marie, go ahead. You're better with money. Go. No, 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 I'm not. I I was just about to say, I did not do that with either of my books. I like to play in the philanthropic slash charitable space with the overall business because I have a much bigger pool of money (laughs) to play with. So I haven't. So I'll be quiet after that. I was about to say I haven't done that, but that's actually not true. I did it with, I did a reprint. My great grandmother was a, I call her an early food blogger. Yeah. Back in the 1920s and 30s, my great grandmother wrote food columns for the Philadelphia Inquirer and she published a cookbook in 1949. 
that was a collection of her essays and a sort of guide to entertaining. And it's very funny. She was a great writer. And I republished it as a charitable, 100% charitable work with Dave Eggers' Valencia program with his tutors program. I didn't actually draw up any of those contracts, so I don't know how they were done. I know that I've at times spoken with my agent and my editor about adding a percentage of charitable, like percentage of the proceeds from this book go to this charity. And I've been advised royalty structures are so archaic and complex anyway, that what I was advised to do was to keep things simple, take the money that I earned and give it to the charity directly, that it's just a lot cleaner. And you can just sort of make that decision in your own head. I'm going to take a certain amount of the percentage of what I earn and I'm going to give it to the charity. It's a lot smoother. The charity gets it faster. That's what I was told. So that's what I ended up doing. Oh, that's cool. One of the publishers I'm talking to right now has an actual charitable arm of their team and they give a certain percentage of royalties and I would as well. And I'm attracted to that. And also we're talking sustainable paper, which is really important to me. I've done a book on recycled paper before, and now I'm looking at Forest Stewardship Council. Oh, that's cool. I didn't even know that one could do such a thing. That's really cool. Well, and I was going to talk to you about that. I think it's something that a lot of authors don't know about. And I think is the more we request it, I talked with Chris Jackson. I had him on the show recently and I said, hey, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you're a publisher at Random House. And he was like, yeah, you are putting me on the spot. And you're right. There's nothing more important than this issue. You know, look at social justice, everything. The most important issue right now is climate. So he agreed with me and he said that they're looking into it more. He actually has a title, All We Can Save, which is an incredible book right now out. And they publish that much more sustainably. So I think we're all kind of moving in that direction. And the more we can talk about it and research it, the better. So I'll keep you posted, Liz, on what I learn. And Thank you. I appreciate that. We can move forward together. The last question I have is on word count. So I have had clients be so worried about their word count. And they say to me, my book is 90,000 words and I know it has to be 80 or it's 120 and I know it has to be 100. And I always say, oh my gosh, if you look at some of the best books in the world, if Eat, Pray, Love had been 80,000 words, I would have been pissed. Because I want to live in that world. I want to stay there for as long as possible. And Signature of All Things was, what was it? It was like 400,000 words. I mean, it was like... I think it was like 90 billion words. I'm not sure, but I think that's a... I think that's a general estimate. It was a lot. I don't remember. But do you guys think of word count when you're writing? Or do you just try to tell the very best story you can and then hope the publisher gets it? I do not think of word count. And my books are all very different lengths. If you take all 12 of my books, <laughs> some of them have no pages at all. <laughs> um, but no, they're all very different lengths. Big Magic is tiny. If you look at the way that it's printed, it's such a cheat. Like it's big print, wide margins. It's like a sixth grader's homework assignment. Like, oh, I made this 20 pages long. There's like four words on each page. It's teeny, teeny, tiny. But I felt that it didn't need to be any longer. I wanted it to be something a person could read in a day. I wanted it to just be kind of an example of what I was talking about earlier, what I had suggested to Marie and to Glenn. And all Big Magic is, is a collection of anecdotes strung together. That's all it is. There's really no connective tissue. There's no introduction that looks like an introduction of a regular book. (laughs) There's no conclusion. It's just, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story, here you go. Now you go do your thing. Yeah. And it's very, very slim. And I just finished writing a novel that I, I've decided for the moment that I'm not going to publish it because it's too, I'm really glad that I wrote it for my own heart, but it's too revealing even for me, a three-time memoirist. <laughs> and it's about Rhea and it's about grief, mm. but it's a novel. And it's teeny tiny. It's so short. It barely qualifies as a novella. It's like a weird lesbian ghost story novella. It's so slim, but it doesn't want to be anything more than that. Signature of all things wanted every inch of the space that I gave it. Mm. It wanted to be 900 billion pages long. It wanted to be a novel that felt like a big 19th century tome. And for this, I kind of take inspiration. You know, I have a very mystical relationship with my books. I believe that each one of them has its own soul and its own thing that it wants to be. And my job is to work with it, to steward it into being what it wants to be. 
not what the market wants it to be, or even necessarily always what I want it to be. And a lot of times when I'm stuck with a book, I'll just talk to it and ask it, what is it that you would like to be? And then once it's done, we can see whether anybody wants it or whether it's marketable in that form. But I have a, a story. I wish I could remember her name. There was an Irish writer a few years ago. She may have won the Booker or one of the really, really big literary awards. And she was a very odd woman. She came from like Galway or from the West of Ireland. And she basically lived in a very small rural village and was very introverted and had never really spoken to people. And then she produced this wildly strange book and it was considered this tour de force. And then she was put on interview circuits and she was like every interviewer's nightmare because she just shouldn't like ability to be, she's not the kind of person you're going to put on Good Morning America. Like she just, yeah. she didn't know how to engage with people. She just was the wrong person for that. And a friend of mine went and saw her speak in Dublin and be interviewed by a very prominent journalist. And the journalist was just dying on stage, trying to get this woman to answer questions more than yes and no. She was just like, yeah, no, yeah. Like she just didn't have any like <laughs> great anecdotes to share. And it's just who she was. But at one point, and I love this because she's sort of very mystical too. I'm so sorry, I can't remember her name, but the interviewer asked the novelist, why is it that none of the characters in your novel have names? And the author just sort of blinked at her with her strange blinking face and said, they didn't come with names. (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) And that was her entire answer. And that's oftentimes how I feel like, why is Signature of All Things that long? It came that long, you know, like why, <laughs> why is this weird little novel that I may or may not ever publish about Rhea only 90 pages? It didn't want to be more than that. You know, like they each have their own soul. And I think if you want to remain creative, you have to give the work its right of determination to have its own opinion about what it wants to be. That's got nothing to do with what it says in the guidebooks. Mm. Amen. Just amen. Amen is right. I love that answer. And there is nothing to add. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Other than it was only 163,000 words and it could have been 200 and I would have still been pissed when it was over. (laughs) Oh, thanks, sweetheart. Mm. Thank you so much. I loved letting it stretch out its legs. And I would say to all of you who are writing and you're worried about that, let that be quite literally the last of your worries. The most important thing is, are you in a spiritual, creative relationship with the book itself? That is what's going to determine the soul of the book. And then let's go see what it is in what we call the real world. But don't be sweating that. Let's just talk to the book, ask it what it wants to be, and then do your best to help it come to life. Yeah. And on a last note, you say, Marie, in Everything is Figure Outable, that you wouldn't have the dream if you didn't already have what it takes to make it happen. And I think that's the perfect topper to what Liz just said. The book is there. It wants to be born. And trust your ache. If you have the ache, trust that you have what it takes. 100%. I think one thing that was really helpful for me because I felt really insecure about my writing was to continue the practice of not editing it as I was trying to get everything out on the page. And for listeners who may or may not struggle a little bit with perfectionism, wanting it to sound good, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) wanting those sentences to just be like, oh, they're so wonderful. I think one of the biggest struggles I had that I had to keep reminding myself of was, and it does relate to word count, was just, Marie, it's okay. Get it all down. It doesn't have to be even remotely, quote unquote, I'm using bunny ears, perfect at this point. And even if this paragraph doesn't necessarily connect with the last one, or we don't know if this is going to wind up being in, the more I gave myself permission to just get everything down on the page, that was one of the practices I had to keep coming back to, to get my mind away from word count or having it sound right the first time. And you did such a good job. As somebody who's read self-help my whole life and written a hell of a lot of it, I tend to not go towards self-help these days just because I find it a little bit boring. And I only read your book, Marie, because I love you. And I was blown away. And I thought, it's so good. It's so well written. It is so good. And then I gave it to my sister. She's got the chops. (laughs) And I gave it to my sister. Same thing. She's much more into novels right now than self-help. 
And she was like, really? I wasn't sure. I thought I might look at it. But since you gave it to me, I'll read it. She called me at midway and she was like, this book is incredible. So... Oh, thank you, you both. True story. True <laughs> yeah, story. It's a it. little teeny tiny. I'm glad I'm not competitive because it would be a little tiny bit unfair that Murray is also like amazing dancer, amazing businesswoman, <laughs> <laughs> amazing speaker, stunningly movie star, gorgeous. Oh, wait. Right, guess what? Hair. She can also oh write. It's the all hair. there. She's a quintuple threat and it's awesome. And May I just say from a personal aspect, an incredibly loyal, decent, giant-hearted and beloved friend. And that's why that shines through, I think, in everything that you do, Marie. So I love you. And I I can't wait to see what you're going to go be good at next. (laughs) God, source, Smurf fairies, whatever form of higher intelligence you might believe in, did not make any extra people just for the heck of it. No other person has or ever will have the unique blend of talents, strengths, perspective, and gifts that you have. Remember, you are a one-time mega event in the universe. Don't fucking waste it. It doesn't matter how many people have gone before you. It doesn't matter how many versions of the same thing you think already exist or have been done by more talented, qualified, or famous people. Forget all that. With over 7.7 billion people on the planet and counting, there are more than enough humans with a diverse set of needs, perspectives, problems, preferences, desires, and tastes. There's always room for more, and there's always room for you. When I was younger, I had wanted to be at the very center of all the action in New York. But I slowly came to realize that there is no one center. The center is everywhere, wherever people are living out their lives. It's a city with a million centers. Somehow, that was even more magical to know. There's always room and there's always magic. Thank you, Liz and Marie. What a joy this has been for the start of hopefully a very hopeful new year. May our talk of magic infuse your psyche, dear listener, your work with all of the figureoutable possibilities your creative dreams ever need. If you're working on a book or a book proposal of your own and would like support in figuring out what's what, I have options for you over on bookmama.com, including something you can download right now, my six-module book proposal magic program that's helped a lot of writers go from idea to done and sold. The program includes the Your Big Beautiful Book Plan Danielle Laporte and I co-authored. I've also just opened up a few live retreat dates in Carmel for July, August, and September when the weather is gorgeous enough to eat and brainstorm safely outside when you're not in your heavenly ocean view room at the iconic La Playa Hotel. I can't wait. I want to thank Penguin Random House Audio for their audio excerpts of Everything is Figureoutable by Marie Forleo, narrated by the author, and the excerpts of City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert, read by Blair Brown. If you haven't already, you're going to love getting lost in these books. Thank you to Kevin Baker, as always, of Red Room Sound and Julia McPherson of Inner Space Marketing. And shout out to Demi Lovato for that beautiful rendition of Lovely Day for President Biden's inaugural celebration. And to everyone who has left their five stars or love notes on iTunes or wherever you listen to us, I appreciate it more than you know. Until next time, Right on.